0: Welcome to the Future of Application Security, a podcast for ambitious leaders who want to build a modern and effective AppSec program. Doing application security right is really hard. Now I'm going to help you build a better future of AppSec at your company by curating the lessons from the leaders. I'm your host, Harshal Park, CEO of Tromso. And without further ado, let's get into it. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening to The Future of AppSec. Today, I'm speaking with Hrithunjay Gotham. He is the Global Head of Product Security at Databricks. Hrithunjay, thanks for chatting with me today. I'm so excited to have this conversation with you. Thanks for having me here. Thank you so much. All right. So before we get started, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, and what do you do? All right. So currently, as you just introduced, I'm uh, running the
1: security functions for Databricks, where we are trying to build a proper security development lifecycle for the entire Databricks platform and anything which is allied. So our target is to make sure that anything we ship out there is not easily hackable. That's our mission statement, right? Because it's unfair thing to claim that it's not hackable. Everything, like, <laughs> that's a fake claim. Nobody makes that, right? So our target is that there should not be easy to hack. And if there's ever a security situation or incident that could happen, then the impact of the issue should be minimal because of defense in depth that we try to build for the product. So that's at a high level what we do for Databricks. Prior to this, I used to be with Citrix Systems where I worked for 11 years. I helped build the entire security engineering functions, which included uh, the product security, which was a defensive organization, the offensive security, red teaming, vulnerability response program. P-cert their entire logging infrastructure, logging standards, and everything across the product. So did all of those things for Citrix Systems before that. And that's sort of the end of my leadership experience because I'm 11 years in Citrix. for was a long time.
0: Oh, wow. that That is really a long time. That yeah. is, that's awesome. So coming from Citrix Systems, which is a large company, a lot of different businesses, a lot of different product lines, global presence, coming into Databricks, how did it feel? Was it different? Oh, it was very
1: different because Citrix has its own upsides, right? As you correctly said, they had their hands in literally everything, right? From cloud to networking, virtualization, mobile technologies and everything, which was very different. But the primary presence for them was on-prem, right? On-prem business. Coming to Databricks, everything is cloud. Even our offices don't have data centers or anything, right? It's just like a cafe. You could just come in, sit there, and it's like there's a cafe with internet connection. So it's a very different view because the entire lab, all the work is completely in the cloud. And therefore that changes the perspective of the hacker. So what does a breach really mean if I come from a hacker perspective, or to breach into something like Citrix versus how to breach something like Databricks? Hmm. It's a very different perspective. So the challenges are very different.
0: Interesting. And for those of the audience who is not aware what Databricks does, do you mind giving like a really high level overview? What does Databricks do? So, Databricks is
1: essentially, you know, as a company, we are providing a platform for our customers where you can bring in your data and build AI-based models, machine learning models, and work with it. But what we solve for you is the scalability, the security, and the speed at which you can work on the AI problems. So, the biggest problem of doing any machine learning, any machine learning problem is that The time of training the data takes eternity, right? And if you are to deal with gigabytes and petabytes of data, now you are going out of range. So being built on the Spark infrastructure, it's super scalable, highly, highly fast system. So that's what data exploits our customers. So we are essentially helping non-FANGs solve the AI problem. Let's say it that way.
0: That's phenomenal. I'm guessing with that comes the challenge of a lot of data, managing the security of a lot of data. Your customers so you don't have a small responsibility now it's a big challenge i'm guessing it is, it is right because uh, every time we are onboarding a customer the customer brings in the data
1: but at the same time we are effectively onboarding their enemies as well right anybody who wants to breach in and get that data because that's another avenue where the data can be stolen from so that makes the job very very critical we just cannot afford a breach because that will break the confidence of the customer.
0: That's actually a very interesting perspective that you onboard a customer, you also onboard the attackers, the potentially bad actors uh, with a customer. Because if somebody's trying to go after one of your customers, you hold all the data, they might go after you. That's interesting. Now, you mentioned briefly Citrix, your earlier employer, they have a lot of on-premise things. And I'm guessing the software development, deployment, and hence the security lifecycle would be a little bit different. It versus a complete cloud platform like Databricks. It is, it is. What were the key challenges or key differences, I guess, that you've seen in an organization that ships on-prem products versus an organization that is cloud-native application? So it starts right from the assumption on the base
1: infrastructure. So when you use any product from any company, there are two views, right? One view is that of a customer where you are trying to Like, for example, when you see Databricks, you essentially see one web interface where you can, which is like a notebook style interface, you can go and create your workspace, right? Code. But that's not what the product is, right? When you see from internally, internally, we are talking about an entire array of servers, a lot of pods, containers and everything, trying to make sure that there are strict multi-tenant segregations and much of things, right? So the complexity of the problem is very different when you see from an inside view of engineering versus what you get from the customer. That Differs quite a bit because the moment you're talking about a product is completely in the cloud, you're effectively not just the engineering team building the product, but also the IT team managing the product deployment. And the customer only gets the use case. The moment you're dealing with an on-prem product, now the IT is still with the customer, right? So they have to deploy the product. They have to manage the complexity of it and everything. So because of that shift of who is going to deploy and manage the product, the security problem changes because the moment we ship the product out, Then I have written good code, but if it is misconfigured and it is incorrectly deployed, it is a problem of the customer from a liability perspective. And there's only so much we can do about it. In Databricks, it's different because even if we have written the code amazing, but if we misconfigured something and there's a hack, it is still our liability. The scope expands suddenly quite a bit
0: because we are not just talking about writing the safe code,
1: but it's more than that, much more than that.
0: Right. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, the layers of the stack that you provide as a product that's ready for the customer to use, but there are still some layers that are quote-unquote service, right? Because in a way, it's your responsibility to manage and maintain and operationalize and secure it uh, in an ongoing basis. So your responsibility, the scope increases for sure. (laughs) What about the pace of delivery? Because if you're shipping on-prem products, I'm guessing, you know, there's scheduled updates, releases of software. So you have a little bit more time as compared to, a cloud yeah. application where I'm guessing potentially faster releases, much frequent releases? So that's where actually the biggest difference comes in for security strategy as well.
1: So like, for example, when you are dealing with a waterfall style of development, right? You have good amount of time to work with design reviews and threat models. Those changes can come in into the code. You can review that. It goes out fine. It's doable. You also know that there's a scheduled release at the end of the quarter, right? So you already know that, okay, it's end of the quarter. No big deal. All right. To get in the cloud world, now you are doing, you're literally publishing changes in production maybe 200 times a week. You cannot really block the velocity of the development team by saying that I'm going, unless we clear your design reviews and you have fixed the bugs, only then that's when you can release because that's not the speed at which you can work if you do it manually. So it's going to be very, very automation focused where a lot of low-hanging problems can be resolved and identified by automation. Things can be auto-blocked because you cannot expect a human to go and do a health check or a release criteria check for anything 200 times in a week. It's just not possible. So that equation becomes very different. And therefore, the strategy in which we implement product security and even the basic SDLC, right, as traditionally defined by Microsoft, right, if you go 15
0: years back, the same model is very different when you do it for the complete cloud products. Yeah, that's a brilliant way of looking at it, which is the strategy fundamentally differs in terms of, you know, in the waterfall model, it's more assessments and communicating the findings as compared to in a more rapid, agile model, it's more preventative things that controls are just in place to enable shift left or, you know, from build securely from the beginning in the first place. I mean, I guess that's the existential question, right? Like, how do you actually implement those things? Do you have a team of people who are building these automations and things? Like, how does that work? So there's a base strategy, right? Which is the SDLC
1: strategy, which we understand, right? Everybody understands that in the industry. The idea is that how much of this can be automated and can be shifted left in a way that as a developer, when I'm writing something, like, for example, I'll give you a simple example. This is a super cool project that we are working on. And this project is essentially supposed to be auto-generating the threat models, or let's say it does an auto-risk assessment for Terraform scripts, right? So rather than somebody going and manually understanding what the environment looks like, what could go wrong, we are trying to extract out all that human intelligence and dump it into, into a code which can now be given as a service so that let's say our infrastructure team, whenever they want to publish a new change into their cloud, they could just take their Tf file, dump it into our service, and it will auto-generate that, okay, here are the problems that you will face, right? And by doing that, we just cut down on weeks of back and forth where somebody has to go deploy that thing, look at the state and everything, and just analyze everything. All of that function is cut down in a matter of few minutes.
0: So maybe this is a very naive question, but help me understand how is that different than Terraform scanning things that existed there's tf scan there's a bunch of commercial products that would look at your terraform scripts and identify problems with it how is it different
1: that's your first step the problem happens so this is a little more enhanced than that because we are talking about the individual components of each section and then you essentially if you're bringing in a specific component let's say a key keyword right or if you bring in a let's say a cosmos db in the equation each component has its own risks its own threats and based on how something is configured to connect a subsection of that threat gets included in your final threat model. So it's not as simple as just doing a simple scan and figuring it out, but we are trying to build a library of threats, which are associated with each cloud component. And then based on the state, right? What the Terraform state looks like we are extracting, or this is what the final threat model will look like. And that gives you a a risk rating of, okay, maybe we need to mitigate this one. We can live with these,
0: but this is okay. It's like that. That's awesome. And, um, Is there also an ability to connect what you deploy using Terraform with what is the actual service that's running? Because that would live as code in a repo somewhere else, right? Or, I mean, within the same source control system. But how do you know what is actually being deployed here as a service? So we have maintained
1: the TF state file for the entire infrastructure. And that's what we essentially use as the input. So we are trying to assess not the TF config, but actually the TF state so that we have an actual picture of what the deployment really looks like. And
0: yeah. Are you planning to open source this anytime soon? Well, as soon as our testing is done, we
1: might actually. Awesome. We'll, we need to get it cleared with legal, but I don't see a good reason why the community should not be able to use
0: that. Right. Yeah. This will be a very, very interesting open source project if you're ever able to open source it. Yeah. Phenomenal. So i heard the use of term product security in your title, and you talked about it as well a yeah. little bit. Help me understand, how do you think product security is different than traditionally what we used to call as application security? Or is it different? It's a little bit different. The application security is a subset of our security, as I would
1: say. Because if you think from app security perspective, most of the times what people understand from app security is your web application security or something where you're looking at the thick slash thin client and you're doing the application layer 7 work and everything. Crowd security goes beyond that because we are dealing with the uh, multiple components. We are talking about the entire product as a whole. So we are looking at not just what the front-facing interface is, but go deeper down, look at the entire infrastructure, and then assess it in two different ways, right? One is the assessment from the architecture perspective on how this component interacts with whatever else and how that that goes beyond is beyond the front-facing interface of the attack. And the second thing is the deployment itself, right? Which is, I was talking that now that we are dealing with the cloud story, right? So it's not just that. So, between what was traditionally called as the cloud security and then the whole infrastructure security and the application security, you combine all that together. That's our view of cloud security.
0: Right. So, that's interesting. Does that also mean that you have to? Either hire different skill set or train your team with a little bit of a different skill set, uh, going towards more cloud configurations, infrastructure, containers, all of that as well, which is correct standard for you know core appsec people who look at. Yeah. Code. They are absolutely right. So the way the way I have been doing this
1: is that uh, we have a nice skill matrix which we have built that for this team to be successful, what all skills that we need in the team. And how many people fit in in what blocks, right? So we exactly have a good matrix which says that, okay, with our existing team, we have skills on these X areas out of total Y areas we need, right? So as we are doing hiring, not every hire is going to be of the same skill set. So there are people who are in my team who are experts on uh, containers and containerization and the internals of systems and internals, right? There are other guys who are completely web hackers, right? Who have skills to completely compromise. Like, you throw them on anything, they will just break it. That's super cool, guys. So, very different skill set. But essentially, we are trying to fill that matrix in a way that the team in itself is super effective as a product security team, where I would rather have people who are
0: master in one rather than jack-of-all-trades. That's awesome. And do you have any suggestions or recommendations on, you know, training programs or like if somebody's just early in their career and they want to model themselves as a really good, strong product security person, what are the resources they can access? Any suggestions on things they can do?
1: There are a lot of good resources which and again, security or Let's say broad security is not a small area, right? Like I can be blunt about it and I can say that there is nobody on this planet, I can guarantee, who can say that they know everything on all the domains of security. There's literally no one. So first of all, you need to choose which is your area of expertise that you want to build. Sometimes you can want to build a niche, right? Like somebody who feels that, okay, maybe they're good in uh, cryptography and they want to build their skills on crypto attacks, right? That's one area, right? So that's a very different set that they want to study. Somebody who wants to build in web security, for example, they could go through a different set of ideas. There are other folks you can, let's say, hacking into the cloud infrastructure is another thing, right? So that's a very different kind of skill set. From a certification perspective today, I think the most popular certification which people like to see is OSCP. Mm -hmm. So if you have OSCP, it definitely gives us a good confidence that, yes, you are somebody who has hands-on experience when actually doing attacks, and it's not just super theoretical that you have read through a OS top 10 page and you're talking about it right so i think that's important and uh, there are some very nice books on uh, amazon specifically from no Starch press on uh, web hacking and everything which are pretty good actually
0: yeah so let me ask you this you mentioned certificates and you know reading books and things like that when you're hiring for talent mm-hmm. you look at you know tens or i'm sure you're looking at hundreds of different resumes mm-hmm. Are there particular things that you look for in a resume at a very high level? When you're looking at high volume, you're trying to build a strong technical team. What do you look for?
1: So usually when I'm looking at resumes, there are a few things which are red flags, which I typically don't. like. If I see that too much on the resume, I would probably not talk to the person. So you, when you look at the resume, you can see a lot of tools listed out there. Like I see Nessus and Burb and WebInspect and Fortify And if that is the highlight of the resume right on the first page, that I am good at these 70 different tools, then I know that, okay, this person does not really know security. Mm -hmm. All they know is running tools and uh, looking at reports and sending out. Because when you're working in product security, you're not really dealing with issues which are easy to discover or which are well-known. You're dealing with literally finding zero days every day in the product because nobody knows about it. You're doing that research, right? So that's something you have to know that the person has an experience beyond that beyond running tools. And again, OSCP was definitely one big positive. The other big positive for me when I'm looking at resumes is is, has this person ever talked or presented in a security conference? It's not about whether the topic was relevant, but it's about that research mindset, right? Whether you are willing to not stop when you face a problem, but you're going to dig deeper, see what are the new things to do, right? And break through. So some of those things definitely stand out as positive. And uh, it helps me... Talk to right people.
0: Sure. Yeah. So you mentioned that research mindset. So I'm guessing like if somebody has a history of bug bounty record, you know, like they, that might be interesting as well. Just Definitely. As, a, as Definitely. A above and beyond recognition. Um,
1: Correct. Uh, of so themselves. a lot of times, you know, specifically for bug bounty, I, there are so many people who are playing bug bounty and people write that on their resume, which is great actually. But I usually like to go into the CV and read through what they have done and the complexity of the problem.
0: That's amazing. You actually uh, take the time to go read that. That's yes, of- I will do that. I will check
1: out, if they're on HackerOne, I'll go on the activity and check out their profile and see what kind of issues they've really submitted, right? And what has really been the complexity. And if there's a common pattern which they're saying, okay, maybe this guy only does XS. That's, that's the only thing I have seen. So I know that they're limited to certain areas. So
0: yeah. I found myself looking into people's public GitHub repos and just trying to see what they work on what they release, source, what they're contributing to, and things like that. For me, that's also a good indicator of... uh, of I do do agree with you. And I have seen even people
1: writing some blogs, which they build, and sometimes those blogs and the quality of content says a lot about how much they really analyze the problem.
0: Right, right. Yeah, so switching gears a little bit, I mean, we talked about a lot of different topics within product security, right? So you, you mentioned, obviously, the traditional web app sec, there's the cloud security stuff, there is crypto and some of the more deeper things around architectures as well. Now, since the scope of app sec has expanded to this broader category of product security, when you come in in a new organization like that, like you just joined six months ago, seven months ago, uh, when you come in, how do you think about strategy piece because it's very easy to be very tactical on and just keep operating on a day-to-day basis because there's just so much to do but how do you take a step back and how do you think about strategy for product security perspective there are two things that I did I think the first item was to not
1: make an assumption of whether the company has the good strategy or they don't have a good strategy let's not make that assumption actually go through so I started with Right from a few things like look at this kind of defects which are getting filed, right? So run through all the defects which have been filed, look at all the open problems that are known in the system, right? So that's a homework that you got to do to understand what is the level of depth at which they have already been analyzed. Secondly, there was a lot of interview that I had to do with various leaders and individual contributors to understand, in, specifically in engineering, because it also gives us a good picture when you're product security you're dealing with engineering as your customer right and you got to keep your customer happy if you cannot value that sound sort of work so from an engineering perspective it was very important to get that feedback that what is not working from product seg, or for example what is it that you would like to be done better right and that view is very important so it actually took me a few weeks almost 3 weeks to run through like almost uh, 20 25 different interviews on different people to understand where things are, do the bug assessment, do the all the background assessment, look at the quality of threat models which are written, right? What is missing? What is not missing? And it definitely helps to have that skill yourself because then I can take a look at it and I can say, okay, fine, I can see that you are sticking to a standard set of problems on spoofing, tampering, but you are actually missing maybe on an actual design problem here, right? And those kind of inputs, and then you see a difference between okay, maybe some people are really doing beautiful work. They have done like excellent work, even if they have not been in security versus some people are missing. So you can kind of get that picture. So you do a gap analysis based on that. And then you start mapping it based on the timeline. That, okay, this is realistically what I can do. That's one. And secondly, that's a qualitative measure. There has to be a quantitative measure by which you can be honest about your own assessment, right? So the model that I used was the OASP uh, SAM model. This is the maturity model which checks for your product security maturity and goes end-to-end, right? So we did an assessment on that. And again, that was like, it does not just talk about product security, but about offensive security, incident response, cloud infrastructure, everything, right? Right from requirements up to a response. So we go through the whole thing. We do assessment and we say, okay, I have a score of X out of, you know, three is the highest score possible. So some X score out of uh, three from X, how do I reach to three? And what is the realistic thing? And we got to understand that the growth is always going to be asymptotic. So it's not going to be like a straight line that, hey, I can reach from X to X plus one in one month, and X plus one to X plus two will be in another month. It doesn't work that way. So be realistic about it, have a fair expectation. And then that's where I think towards, it took me around a month to get all those things sorted. And after that,
0: I think the winning factor was the support from the leadership. So that's always important. <laughs> yeah. So I guess one of the questions that I used to spend a lot of time just trying to figure out myself, I never found that the right answer is, when you look at these maturity models, whether it's OpenSAM or BSim or what have you, there are so many different domains and agreed, all of them are important in one way or the other. But when you do a maturity assessment, I'm sure there's going to be a lot of gaps in any company, uh, yeah. in a lot of different areas. Yeah. So, it's also not reasonable to expect that we will reach maturity, the highest maturity level across all of those domains. So, oh, I never say we will. Exactly. So you had to pick and choose. Now, the question is, how do you pick and choose which domains to focus on first and which ones comes next? Well, it's all about the ROI, right?
1: So where my investment is going to give me the maximum return at the end of the day, which is where the water shift left model is, if you think about it. there is something which we have to definitely build in maturity. Like, for example the vulnerability response program in itself is super critical because your customer is cribbing about it or some hacker has rep- reported an issue with you, then you cannot not have maturity on that. So that, like even though it's the rightmost section, there has to be a, a certain amount of process and maturity over there. So that's definitely to be done. But once that, that reactive model is set up, then you don't have to bring as much maturity in your last bit of pen testing pre-release immediately as much as you needed to bring in the threat model. Because the reality is that the fixing the problem at the threat model level is always going to be much less expensive compared to that. So it's all about shifting left at the end of the day. So if I have to see, like there are 15 different sections in os SAM model, and if I have to raise the bar, right, if I just look at it as a bar chart, then if I have to raise the bar, I'll start raising the rightmost bar of the response first, right, bring it as high as possible, and then immediately shift to my leftmost model and then start bringing it up from there. So it's going to be like a curve which is going to be left heavy. And that's the general strategy.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. And I'm guessing as you change your areas of investments, you probably will need different types of skills within the team, different types of functions, different types of processes. So the team's responsibilities, charter objectives also will keep changing as you go through that maturity improvement.
1: I would say so, yes. You're absolutely right.
0: Fantastic. In terms of just the, the broader industry, what are the common things that you've seen across, let's just call it product security, any common challenges within the industry, if you want to share a few thoughts on that?
1: I think uh, there are certain kind of challenges which we are seeing across the industry. One of the most common things we are seeing is uh, distributed tracing. So like everybody has models for logging And when you're writing code, everybody's writing logs, which is great, actually. But the problem happens when you're dealing with microservices architecture, right? So many microservices interacting with each other in a multi-tenant environment, spread over multiple clouds, including customers' data center. Now, you're dealing with a super complex environment. Imagine a hacker who just entered into the system from some random endpoint in some place, and then they jumped between services and jumped around, right? If you have to realistically find the trace that exactly when that happened and not just the entry point, but exactly where all they went, it's super hard because what happens is that each of these services is being developed by different groups, right? Every team is building their own and therefore everybody follows their own model of what they want to log, what they don't want to log. So the cross-service jump tends to get missed. And that's the problem with distributed tracing. And it's the one common problem which I have seen with so many companies happening. So that's something which I think industry as a whole is maturing towards, including us. We are maturing as well. But uh, it's one problem. The other problem which I have seen very common is that the view on threat modeling. And most of the times, people see threat model as just a product threat model, which is the stride model, which Microsoft defined like long-time back. stride, thread, something. The problem is more than that, specifically in the cloud space. So I like to see threat modeling as two issues to be solved, not one. So there's a product threat model, which is what the traditional threat model is, and then there's a deployment threat model, which is something which you're completely missing. This is what I was talking about earlier, right? So threat models is actually a split problem, but most of the people who are looking at threat models are only solving one of them, not the second one, which is which is another issue which we are seeing. And third issue which I usually see is around penetration testing. A lot of time when you are getting a penetration testing, even if it's a third-party vendor or whatever, what happens is that it's all about the ROI. So most of the times, people are just looking at OWASP top 10. And, okay, can I find this vulnerability? But what happened is that you missed on everything which was business logic vulnerability, which was internal, because it didn't go that deep. And so the depth of pen testing is something which is missing. So I think those are the three things that comes in my mind immediately.
0: It's awesome. Yeah, that's a really good summary. Of key challenges i 100 agree that those are unsolved problems in the industry in terms of threat modeling you brought up a good point which is it's not just the product but it's also the deployment threat model have you seen anybody do similar work as are any other security teams doing work on this type of consolidation or expansion of threat models i am not
1: personally aware of that i'm more than sure microsoft google these guys would be invested into that but mm-hmm. uh, I have done this for Citrix in the past, and I have, we have been working on this for years as well. I'm more than sure. The problem is not an unknown problem. I'm more than sure right. we, people will realize this sooner
0: or later. Awesome. Awesome. How do you guys do threat model? I mean, if you have a, a fast-moving engineering environment, how do you actually practically do it? And do you do it for everything, or do you do it for selective things? So
1: we have uh, two kind of uh, design review processes. So one is what we would like to call it as a light threat model, which doesn't really require a formal drafting of everything. That will typically happen for minor feature changes and et cetera. And the second thing is a formal threat model when there's some any major change which touches the security component and everything. And then there's a formal threat model. So those are two different streams, obviously. The first one, which is a simple design review, will require much less investment. And it is typically done over one or two calls. The other one requires maybe a week worth of work. Now the problem happens is on the scalability. And for that, we have a brilliant uh, champions program that we have. And honestly, I've never seen it work so well in any other company, the way it is working here. We have got like more than 40 champions from engineering who are pretty involved, actually. And they're really good. They work very closely with the project team, literally like... We work as partners, we try to build uh, threat models quickly and our target is to speed up the process as much as possible. So it's not just my team, but with the 40 champions, with effectively the extension of the project team, that works out very well.
0: That's awesome, especially if you can fully leverage those security champions who obviously yeah. are very deep into the code base, into the architecture, and if they, they are the best people to do the threat modeling work. What do you do with all the artifacts that come out of it? So let's just say a security champion uh, performed a threat model, light or heavy, whatever that is. It may or may not come with some artifacts or findings or to-dos or what have you. Yeah. Do you maintain visibility, track it? We do. We do. You so do.
1: We put everything into Jira. There is a specific label that we use, and then it is tracked at the engineering leadership level.
0: So your expectation is for the Eng team to identify them through security champions, but also fix them at a certain... So point. work with security champions and
1: prods. We don't just stick with Eng relying on itself. So the problem is very weird here. Because if I am, let's say, if I am somebody in the engineering who is trying to build something, it is hard for me to find the design problems there because if I would have found it, I would have fixed it in the beginning itself, right? Mm-hmm. So it's like, right. it's not possible. Yeah. So yeah. relying on edge to do it is unfair expectation, very honestly. So between the champions and ends, they're bringing a lot of good knowledge on the product and architecture and the code. We bring in that evil eye, right? That, okay, how do we break things into it? And you combine those two and you become like, a very strong force to analyze the whole thing.
0: Right. And where do you draw that line? Let's say you have some findings out of that architecture review. There's one extreme is to force them to fix things, but you're at the same time disincentivizing them to find things in the first place Mm -hmm. or hide things from you. Or there's like on the other side, like you can do whatever you want. It's up to you. Like, you know, totally leave it up to them. So what's your perspective? Where do you stand in the middle of those two extremes? So my perspective is not on absolute security. It's about risk management. So
1: you have to understand that if we are not fixing something completely, is there a mitigation that we can do to lower down the severity or the possibility of the exploitation? At that stage, we come to a level where what is an acceptable risk when you go out with something? There's no product out in the world which shifts with zero vulnerabilities, right? You see the number of patches that Chrome gets these days? It's just crazy, right? So there's no product out there which has no vulnerability. So we have to have a risk management attitude and that's what we do. At the end of the day, we will clear that from saying that, okay, fine, from threat modeling perspective, we know how to mitigate this. At the code, when the code is written, we will go through a manual code review and see whether the mitigation was actually applied and if we find anything that, yeah, this may or may not
0: work, then sure, go ahead and do an exploitation and see if it actually works. Interesting. So not only does the security team get involved in making the decision, whether it's acceptable or not, but somebody also validates whether the fix has been put in place yeah. in code. Yeah. Interesting. That sounds like a lot of work. It is. It is.
1: <laughs> it is It is a lot of work, but it's a very interesting
0: work, let's say that. Uh-huh fascinating fascinating this is super exciting uh, you guys are doing a lot of amazing work are you hiring mm-hmm. for appsec second? we are actively so hiring yes what types of yeah. roles are you hiring for well that's the project role right <laughs> so everything that we just showed
1: that's that's the kind of thing we are doing we are hiring in the u.s as well as europe and um, we actually grew the team from like two people in january when i started right now we have like uh, 11 people and uh, That's reasonably fast, frankly, with six months of hiring. Our target is to hire at least four more people towards this
0: year. But yeah, you never know. We may get more rec. (laughs) That's amazing. Well, if any of you listeners, if you're looking to join a top-notch security team with security-conscious developers, go to Databricks.com and check out the security openings on their careers page. Mithin this has got me super excited. This is all the time we have to cover today. Thank you so much for spending the time here and I hope to have you back sometime soon. Let's uh, stay in touch. Thanks, Harshil. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. Thanks for listening to The Future of Application Security. If you've enjoyed this episode or you are new to the show, I'd love to have you subscribe wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss any episode. And if you like the podcast, I'd be grateful if you can leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Thank you for listening.